Well, good morning, church. Uh, I would love it if you had them, if you would put on your philosopher's hats this morning and maybe order some souvlaki takeout because we are headed to Athens in the heart of ancient Greece to the summit of a hill called Mars Hill to a gathering of the intelligent elite of the ancient world, a place called the Areopagus. To go there would be the modern-day equivalent of heading right into the heart of the Ivy League, Oxford or Cambridge or Harvard, all, all mashed up together. It was the brightest of the bright who were invited there to the summit of Mars Hill. And we reached that place in the book of Acts that we've been working through now for several months in chapter 17 where the Apostle Paul is invited to speak in front of the Areopagus. This is, a, this is a major moment for Paul. Paul had always contended that the gospel, well, it's intensely personal. It's about personal peace and personal transformation. is never private. That the gospel belongs in the public square. That the gospel has what it takes to contend with public ideas. That the gospel is meant to engage and wrestle with and both support and challenge culture. And that's what happens when we get in the book of Acts to chapter 17. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 17. We're going to read that story. You pick it up midway through the chapter, Acts 17, in verse 16. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that that city was filled with idols. He reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well in the market as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what, what is this babbler trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. And then they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we'd like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Nice work if you can get it. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this... This is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples made by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth. 
And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him. Though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. I'm going to stop there. We'll, we'll pick up the last little bit towards the end of the message, but let's begin together in prayer. Our God, it's be, because the gospel is personal for us, because it has been life changing, that we want it to be more than just personal. We want it to be part of the culture in which we live. We, we believe, God, that that it's good news, and because it's such good news, it's meant for everyone. And so I pray, God, that as we look at this early early place of engagement of the gospel and culture, that there'd be lessons for us, that there'd be challenge for us, that there'd be opportunities not just to hear and learn, but to practice some of the boldness and and some of the wisdom and some of the winsomeness of of Christianity's earliest missionaries. God, we pray that. Ask your, we ask Your Spirit to move freely in our lives and in the room. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. This encounter of Paul in the Areopagus, this speech, carefully thought out, more actually of a speech and an exercise in rhetoric than a sermon. This speech has been analyzed and dissected and picked apart now for for centuries and and rightly so there's a brilliance to it uh, to fully unpack it probably would require some background in in Greek philosophy which you don't have and I don't have well maybe some of you have you never know uh, a background in Greek rhetoric which again I presume we we don't have and and it would probably take a lot of time So what I'd like to do instead is just offer you three very high-level observations that reflect on three things that can be learned from the encounter. And what I'd like to point out to you today, and you have them in your notes, are the way that the gospel engages, confronts culture, particularly when there are problems with culture. That's the first thing. The second thing, and it's the primary thrust of Paul's address, has to do with a view of the greatness of God. That may sound like a a simple point of reflection, but that was bold. It was particularly bold back then. It might turn out to be equally bold today. And the last thing is is the abrupt ending of the message, because we'll see when when we get to that last part of the book of Acts, chapter 17, that, that it doesn't really sum up nicely. It ends very abruptly, and it ends with the outrageous claim of the resurrection. That's where we're going. Let's start first with culture. The very beginning of the passage, we're told that Paul reasoned in the marketplace. He was there reasoning day by day with those who happened to be there. Among those who were there, two groups, Epicureans and Stoics, philosophers, who began to debate with them. And and some of them said, "What? what in the world is this babbler going on about? few things that we learn. We learn, first of all, that, that the gospel is meant to be there in the public 
discourse. It's meant to be there in the marketplace. That's very different, I think, than we understand religion nowadays, which, though it is, I think, still somewhat discussed, is viewed largely as a private and personal affair, not meant for public discussion, at least not in this part of the world. In most other parts of the world, by all means, but, but not here. So when it says that, that Paul went into the marketplace, what do you think right away? I think the shopping mall. I mean, don't you? The marketplace, the shopping mall. I imagine him wandering around in square one, looking for people sitting in those little conversation areas that we've created and sitting down with them. That's, that's my conception of the marketplace. That's not ancient Athens. Some of you have traveled to Greece, right? Anybody been to Greece? Just by show of hands. When you were in Greece, you probably went to the Agora. Did you? That's what this marketplace is. It's the Agora. To understand the Agora, you have to realize that in that day and age, well, where did people go to get the news? There's no newspaper delivery. There's no Twitter feed. Uh, There's no AM Toronto to tune into on your radio. To get the news, you went to the Agora. And standing in the Agora at different places in the market would be heralds. Heralds from different regions of the world who would say out, speak out, often shout out the news. They would herald the events of the day. What was the financial center of the world? If you had business to do, contracts to negotiate, transactions to complete, you went to the Agora, to the marketplace. It wasn't just the, the economic and the, and the media center of the world. It was the artistic center of the world. So the, the Agora was filled with musicians and dramatic troops and sculptors and artisans of all sorts working. That's the Agora. To go to the Agora, to go to the marketplace, is to go to the center of finance and media and art, to the very center of culture. To go to the Agora in Athens means you're going to the center of the center, because Athens and Rome were still the center of the ancient Western world. So he's going to the heart of the heart of the world. And there... He's going to go into this place where ideas are forged and and disseminated. And and the ideas that emerge there very rapidly spread to the rest of the world. And he's not intimidated. Notice it it says that, that he, after he plunged right in, he reasoned in the marketplace. It's kind of important to bring that word out. He reasoned in the marketplace. The word there is dialogomai. And you hear the word dialogue there? He dialogued with them in the marketplace, but maybe not the way that we think of, of dialogue. This is, this is a very specific word, and here's where you get to put on your philosopher's cap. The word here actually means Socratic reasoning. Now, I have no idea what that means, and probably neither do you, but I read about it a little this, this week. Socratic reasoning for the philosophers who are here uh, is is the idea that you get to the truth through questioning. So in Socratic reasoning, I'm not concerned first and foremost with arguing you into submission, getting my points out there and getting them heard. I want to understand you. What are your premises? What are your beliefs? What's your starting point? And then once I've understood your starting point through questions, I'm going to ask questions about the things that I've just questioned. 
Socratic method is all about questioning. One question followed by another. And I'm going to try and dig into your premises, what you believe, and try and go one layer deeper after another until we either are able to say that your premises hold or that they don't. That's what Paul is doing. This is, this is not, uh, this is not a, a vitriolic sermon coming from the front. This is engagement. He's engaged with them. So when you hear the word, hear the word cultural engagement, church sometimes talks about the need to be culturally engaged. That's where it comes from. We don't have many good models for this. Because uh, when we hear words like dialogue, debate, engagement, uh, we tend to think, or at least I tend to think, of, of high-profile public debates. And those are largely televised political debates, which have nothing to do with listening to what your opponent in the debate has to say. There's very little listening that goes on at debates at all, is there? You just talk over each other, make sure your talking points get heard, make sure that you answer none of their questions of you, and try and survive to the end, and then you go and you see who got the most points, however they kept score. That's not what's here. This is engagement. And, and it's built on this idea that the gospel has something meaningful to say to culture, that we shouldn't be afraid of taking the ideas behind the gospel into culture, that this is not just the realm of the elites, of the academics, that the gospel belongs here. Paul had no doubt about it, and so he plunges right in. By the way, I mean, and it's worth saying, think about where you live. Uh, those of you who are here this morning are probably here because you live in the GTA. To live in the GTA means that you live in the Agora of Canada. And I realize there are people who are listening in on the internet and they're going to argue this point if you're coming from other parts of the country. And you may be right. But hear me out. The GTA is still, I think, the financial center of the country. It's the agora in an economic sense. It is because most of the media headquarters are here, also the media center of our country. It's also that in the sense of the ancient agora. And you can argue if it's not the top, it is certainly one of the top two or three artistic centers of the country. So to live in the GTA is to live in the middle of the Agora. How Paul chooses to engage culture says an awful lot about how we are invited to engage culture right here. Because you live in the heart of it. So let's have a look at, at what he does. What is it that happens well, Paul launches in with his, uh, with his discussion, with his reasoning with them. Uh, immediately, he's mocked. They sneer at him. Uh, there's very little in the way of conversation. But there at the very beginning, it says that there's these two groups that are involved. You see them named there? We mentioned them, I think, in passing last week. The two groups, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Not words that we use, right? The Epicureans and the Stoics. They come and say, what is this babbler trying to say to us? An interesting little word there. It means literally a bird picking away at seeds on the ground. As if to say, he's just picking up little ideas here and there and regurgitating them for us. Not a compliment, right? This is the intelligent academic elite of the world really, really getting at him. They laughed at him. 
The irony is, incidentally, that 250 years from now, the message of the gospel would do a clean sweep of the world, and it becomes the, the faith of the intelligentsia. And from them, it goes out to the world. But people in those early days, they, they looked at Paul, they looked at his message and said, it's ridiculous. So if you ever feel that in the middle of the agora of the GTA, know that you're not alone. As a person of faith, you're ridiculous. Have you heard that or felt that? That, that you're a byproduct of a world that, that is long gone, that, that faith has no purpose, no relevance, and no significance in the world today. It's ridiculous. And yet faith swept the table within two centuries of that encounter in the Agora. How did it happen? The basic idea, what, what Paul is able to do here, is show how the gospel gets at the underbelly of culture. Every culture has it, right? Every culture has something within it that, that people realize is a weakness. We have yearnings, we have questions, we have desires, we have emotions, and culture tries to address or answer them, but it doesn't do so sufficiently. What do I mean? Well, there's these two groups, Stoics, Epicureans. Those of you who did take a first-year philosophy class, I'm going to apologize to you right now because I'm going to grossly oversimplify it and you're going to call me on it and I'm just going to say, be nice. Okay, be, be nice. But here they are, two groups. The Stoics, who are basically the moralists. And the Epicureans, who are kind of the relativists. And we'll get at what those things mean. But we have the moralists and we have the relevists. The moralists, the Stoics, they believed in in moral absolutes. They believed that the meaning of life is to be good and virtuous and noble and courageous. And boy, that sounds great, doesn't it? But they believed that the way to do that is to close yourself, close yourself off from anything that, that might knock down the facade. Anytime suffering comes into your life, you need to detach your heart. That rather than risk getting your heart broken, you don't allow yourself to love or care for anything so deeply that it would affect you. You don't grieve. You don't sweat. You don't cry. Because the meaning of life is to be a strong person. Good stock. Stiff upper lip. Right? There we are. Now historians would say that this just didn't work for most people. When suffering and grief and trouble came... They cried nonetheless. They sweated their way through. There was anxiety. And, and stoicism saying, just suck it up, wasn't working for them. And then Christianity comes along and says, there's a God who cares. There's healing. There's a peace. And sometimes the peace isn't even going to make sense. There's hope. There's life. There's even resurrection. And that was a lot more comforting, a lot more helpful to people who were suffering. Furthermore, they watched as Christians had such an incredibly settled sense of peace in the middle of suffering and persecution. They even saw how Christians died with dignity and courage. And that made them throw their hands up and say, I don't know what it is, but what they've got, we need. Christianity exposed the soft underbelly of that part of the culture. Let's look at the other group. There's the Epicureans, the, the relativists. It's all relative. Because when you die, that's the end. They thought, you know, 
curtain down, you're done. That the best you could hope for in life is to extract the maximum amount of pleasure from life as you made your way through. In a sense, it doesn't matter what is true or not true, because the goal is not truth, the goal is pleasure. Get the most pleasure out of life. They believed the most important thing to do is to be happy. They talked an awful lot about sexual freedom. That was a a primary value for them because they thought that was one of the most significant roads to happiness. And again, historians wondered, how is it that the Christian view of sexuality, which on the surface seemed to be a lot more restrictive, how is it that it won the day in this culture of sexual permissiveness and freedom? And the answer is because when sex in that area, that culture of freedom is all about personal satisfaction, fulfillment, and desire, it leads only to loneliness and emptiness. And yet they were watching as this emerging Christian culture with its view of sexuality was enjoying unity and fulfillment and in the long run, a kind of joy that that was just missing. And it swept the day. Now, I mean, I'm hearing, you're hearing too, once again, that the, the Christian view of sexuality is restrictive and outdated. Get with the program. Things have changed, don't you know? <laughs> At some level, I think that shows a real lack of understanding of history. Christianity has been here before. We know what happens in a culture of sexual permissiveness where the goal is is self-gratification, not mutual enrichment. Here's one more thing about those two groups, Stoics, Epicureans. The Stoics believed that there's this set of moral absolutes, these things you ought to do. This is courageous, this is right, this is strong, this is true. There are these absolutes that are out there. Together, they called those absolutes the Logos. The Logos. And they thought if you were smart enough, if you were wise enough, if you were a good enough philosopher, you could, you could understand them. You could grab those things. If you were elite enough, part of the intelligentsia, you could pull the Logos down and make it part of your life. And that was the goal. And it was a goal that was realized really only by the highly trained, only only by the the most rigidly gifted academics. And where did that leave everybody else? Kind of left them out there. Christianity comes and says, oh yes, there is a Logos. Uh, There is meaning to life. There is purpose. Purpose beyond what you could have imagined and dreamed. There's structure in the universe. But it's not an idea. It's a person. Listen to to the Gospel of John, the first verse, and listen to it as I use the one word that's there in, in Greek that we translate into English. In the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. See, what's changed? What was meant to give purpose and, and significance and a sense of, of right used to be this set of elaborate ideas that only a few could understand. Now it's a person. 
And the goal is, is not knowledge, the goal is relationship. That, that God, the Logos of the world, wants to be understood, desires relationship with His people. That's so much warmer, isn't it? It's so much more relatable and accessible. And again, it swept the world. The point was for Paul. He realized that every culture had this soft underbelly. In every culture, there was a way for the gospel to come in. And that's how it came in to the, into the area around Greece and, and Rome. It was different, incidentally, in, in Judaism. But this is how it happened in Greece and Rome. If you wanted to spend some time in your small groups this week, if your small group is reflecting on the message week by week, Here's something to think about. What are the weaknesses of our culture? What is the soft underbelly of 21st century Canada? Where are the inroads for the gospel today? We have morality. You may not agree with it, but we have it. But, but we don't have a basis for it. We desire community. People are desperate for it. And yet we try and destroy it in so many ways. We dismantle it. Lots of problems that are similar to the ancient world. Probably a lot that aren't. Probably that are new. But maybe you want to spend some time in your small group saying, what, what are the weaknesses of our culture that the gospel can address? Okay, let's, uh, let's move on. Any of that souvlaki arrive yet? When you look at the actual speech that Paul makes in the Areopagus, that council of leading philosophers and public intellectuals, the actual speech has one master theme, and it's to do with the greatness of God. He's going to give them an enormous view of God, far bigger than anything that they've ever conceived. And that's hard, I think, for us to get our heads around because many of us have grown up only with the idea that the universe as it is, is the byproduct of, of one massively powerful creative mind. That there is one God who made everything. That was not an idea. That wasn't even on the table in the ancient world. And certainly not in Athens and Rome. And certainly not at the Areopagus. They had gods. Of course, they had loads of them. The, the Agora was filled with statues to all of the gods. But the gods were prickly. Uh, the gods were notoriously fickle. They'd do one thing one day and another thing the next. They were changing their minds. They were angry. They got their feelings hurt. They were egocentric. And they were always fighting with each other. And human beings always got caught up in the conflict. And it was never good for us. That was their understanding of the gods. You didn't adore them. You worshipped them. But you worshipped them only to appease them. If you needed to cross the sea to the other side, you did something to appease the god Poseidon. Just to make sure that he wasn't angry with you. And the boat that you're on didn't swamp and sink. And so that the gods, they weren't something that you loved or admired or respected. They were something that sometimes you feared, but mostly you just appeased. They were gods for everything. In fact, you still have them. They're all over your calendar. January, February, March, April, those are the Roman gods in their English form. 
And Paul is walking through the Agora, and, and he's upset by it. All these statues, all these pagan gods. And then he comes across one right here with a strange inscription. You remember what it said? To an unknown God. Now, I don't know what, maybe that's a sculptor just doing his due diligence, right? <laughs> Making sure if, if they forgot one, here it is. But, but he starts, and it's brilliant. He doesn't start by arguing them into submission. I'm going to prove to you that God exists. I know we want to start that way, and, and I know that, that it's important that we, that we understand there's good, solid, rational basis for what we believe. But people are seldom ever argued into believing. He doesn't start that way. He says, people of Athens, I see that in every way you're religious. I walked around and I saw all your objects of worship and I found this one with an inscription to an unknown God. He's going to start with what they think that they, they already know or what they want to be true. There's no God up there that, that you've forgotten about, he says. There's no God that you've overlooked I'm going to tell you about the only God that really matters. Let me, let me start with the God that you don't know. But let me build that starting point on your desire to know Him. So you're not so much arguing somebody into believing in the existence of God. You're starting where they are with the desire to to have something out there that makes sense of their world. You know there's a God that you don't know. You've made a statue for Him. Let me tell you about Him. And let me tell you this. It's the most important thing. He is big. I mean, He's, he's bigger than any of the gods you could possibly imagine. Verse 24, He made the world and everything in it. He's the Lord of heaven and earth. Verse 25, not only did He create everything, He's dependent on nothing. He doesn't need you. He doesn't need your sacrifices. He doesn't need your appeasement. He's not served by human hands. He's self-sufficient. He doesn't dwell in these buildings that you made for Him. He's beginningless. He's endless. He's sovereign over everything, Paul goes on. He made all the nations. He marked out all the borders. He appointed all the times in history. Everything's under His control. God is bigger than anything that you've imagined. And boy, that's a liberating message. He realized then, as we realize now, that, that too many of us, and too many of them live with a God that is too small. And He caps it. And this is brilliant. You talk about cultural engagement. He caps it by reaching into their own culture. And he quotes two of their own writers. One of them, incidentally, is on the front of your bulletins. Yes, that's a quote from Scripture. But in quoting in Scripture, we're actually quoting an ancient Greek writer who said, in him we live and move and have our being. That's a quote. And then he quotes another poet who says, we are his offspring. Let me tell you what it means. What your own writers have said. Let me tell you what it means. We live with a God that's too small. And I think that's true today too. Even those who make some room, some allowance for faith in their lives. Live with an idea that, that God is only going to get to be God in my life if He's doing things the way I think things ought to happen. And if He's not, I have no room for Him. If you really want rest, assurance, trust, and a solid foundation, you need God to be bigger than that. 
You need God to be bigger than the whims of your own life and the whims of fortune in your own life. Let me give you the best, and probably the most challenging example of that that I know of. In the early 1950s, Elizabeth Elliot attended a missions conference. Uh, she was there with thousands of other people when, when five young people took the stage. That night, those young missionaries sang a hymn that starts with these words, We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. And at the end of the conference, those five young missionaries They got on a plane, they flew to the Amazon basin to reach out to a a really remote Amazonian tribe. They were going to engage them with the gospel. They met the fatal end of a spear. All five of them were speared to death, including one who was Elizabeth's husband, Jim. And of Jim Elliot, she writes, they were speared to death in the course of their obedience. Now what does that do to your faith? Does it demolish it? A faith that disintegrates is a faith that was not resting in God Himself. And she goes on, she says, God is God. And if He is God, He is worthy of my worship and my service, and I will find rest nowhere else but in His will. That rest is infinitely, immeasurably, unspeakably beyond my largest notions of what he's up to. And then she quotes Evelyn Underhill. If God were small enough to be understood, he wouldn't be big enough to be worshipped. Can you handle that medicine? If you have a God that's small enough to be understood, He's not big enough to be worshipped. And if He's big enough to be worshipped, then He's big enough to have plans that you and I don't always understand. When you have a God that's that big, that's that in charge, you can finally relax. And so Paul presents this incredible argument. It's, It's for the mind and it's for the heart. And it's about the greatness of God. And then I'll ask you to open your Bibles again to Acts chapter 17 and just glance with me at the end of his time at the Areopagus because it, it doesn't really end. We joked during the prayer time before the first service with the worship team that at this point in the service, maybe we ought to just hit the alarm bell because it stops that abruptly for Paul. He doesn't really finish. We stopped at verse 28. Glance through there in verses 29 through to 32. And you see he's just, he's building up ahead of steam. And then it says, as soon as they heard about the resurrection of the dead, verse 32, they sneered. They sneered. And then it stops. Curtain comes down. It's all done. A very few of them said, we want to hear you back on this subject. And two, two at least, eventually came to believe and to follow. But it's interrupted. And as far as immediate success goes, it looks like for all extents and purposes, this encounter, this engagement was a failure. As soon as the resurrection is mentioned, 
everything stops. The resurrection has a tendency to do that, doesn't it? It, it just it takes all religious conversation out of the rounds of the normal venue for discussion and it puts it somewhere else. We're used to tossing our ideas back and forth. This works for me. That doesn't work for me. I can see how that may be true for you. This isn't true for me. I like this. I don't like that. But then comes the claim of resurrection. And it's a claim so staggering, so outrageous, that a man who claimed to be son of God wasn't just resuscitated, was actually was resurrected in a glorious new body. And if that's true, then Christianity becomes true whether you like it or not, whether you wanted it to or not. And, and clearly for Paul, he didn't like it or want it to be. But he realized that if Christ said what he said and did what he did, what he did then he had to throw away everything else and follow him, that there wasn't going to be any halfway. You would either live for him and him alone and do for him and him alone. Or, if he didn't rise from the dead, you could live any way you wanted to. That was the outrageous claim of the resurrection, and it was too much for the Areopagus. It's still too much for people today. Do you feel it? Do you feel the weight that the claim of resurrection has in your life? He has to come first. If you're still in, in a searching mode, in a seeking posture, have you really come to grips with the evidence for the resurrection? It's there. It's all there. Acts 17 ends abruptly. Paul ejected from the Areopagus. I don't know, maybe he felt like a failure. He was mocked. They sneered at him. Not every engagement is going to end successfully. You know that. Was Paul upset? I don't know. He was pretty upset at the beginning. He's walking around and all the idols. But he's not so upset that he gets disgusted and then he leaves. And sometimes the church does that with culture. We get disgusted. And all that we have for it is negativity, resistance, and then we wall ourselves off. Paul takes the opposite tax. He plunges himself right into the marketplace, even though he probably knows he's going to be mocked and rejected. He does it, and it was painful. And at the same time, he probably realizes that that's exactly what his Savior had done for him, who looked down from heaven and saw the sorry state of human beings and decided, I will not abandon them. We will not wall heaven off from them. He plunged himself into the marketplace of the world. And remember, they, they blindfolded him. They punched him until he bled. They said, prophesy, you Christ. They mocked him. They sneered and they jeered as they pressed thorns into his head. And then they executed him. A rushed trial in the marketplace. They mocked him as he died. And then he rose again. He was raised. Outrageous. You know, Easter morning falls on April 1st this year. I love that. <laughs> I love that. Fooled you. It, it was outrageous. He was raised. And from that small beginning that you see here in, in the book of, uh, of Acts in chapter 17, that faith swept the world. 
take this away. We'll, we'll pray about it. We gotta love our culture. We have to. No matter what it says. We love them with a view towards changing them. But we need to take the gospel as Paul did. It is still the hope of the world, is it not? People need to hear. Let's pray. Father, give us a sense of your presence as we as we try our best to walk in your footsteps and the footsteps of your servants, men and women like like Paul. Lord Jesus, as we as we walk in those hard steps, as we try to be believers and and lift up the gospel in the marketplace and listen and question and fully engage in our day and our city. We ask for that same courage, that that same creativity, that same winsomeness that Paul had. Most importantly, we ask for the sure and certain hope of Jesus and the steady companionship of His Spirit. We pray in His name. Amen.